Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book people, people who like to read books. It's a great way to reach people who like to read books on the internet. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not people who like to read books on the internet. It's people who like to read books. And if you want to reach them on the internet, you go to litbreaker.com. Am I making any sense here? Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It's a collection of websites in the literary realm and you can advertise on those sites all at once or piecemeal, whatever you like. You can pick the sites you want. You can advertise on the full network. It's very user-friendly. Go to litbreaker.com for more information so you can reach bookish people online. Get your message out to bookish people online. Do you understand? Litbreaker.com. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for book people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. This is the Other People program. This is the Other People podcast. You found it. You did it. Congratulations. I'm proud of you. It's good to be with you. I'm having a good day today, getting stuff done. I made a list. I'm putting check marks next to the various items on my list. I'm being productive. I'm being proactive. I'm finding proactive solutions to problems. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have a great show for you today. Michael Finkel is my guest. He's got a book out called The Stranger in the Woods. It's about a hermit. Very excited to share this interview with you. I read the book, and uh, I think I was tweeting about my love of books about hermits or this recent kick that I've been on. I've been reading a lot about hermits, and for that, I credit Michael Finkel. He got me going, making me consider whether or not I want to um, be a hermit myself. Though I guess that's not really possible since I have a young children, unless I take them with me. Can you be a hermit with your family? Or does that contradict the entire premise? I have some mail here. The first letter comes from a listener named Sam who writes, Dear Brad, I've been listening to your podcast since episode one and only now felt compelled to email you. There is no real reason behind this. I just never got around to it. 
and always forgot the email address you mentioned. I also wondered if you would be even be the person reading these. In my head, I imagine either an assistant, perhaps multiple assistants on different schedules, or an intern fields these emails and maybe marks them on levels of importance slash interest and then conveys them to you. I might just be overestimating the amount of emails you receive, though. Signed, Sam. Actually, Sam, you're exactly right. I have a team of assistants who sorts through my email. I get thousands a day, and I've had to hire a team of assistants. They work virtually for me overseas in uh, both Bangalore and Bangladesh, and they go through, I would say on average, between 2,000 and 5,000 emails a day, and they sort them on a five-star rating scale. Five stars being, um, you know, most critical. And they then chart this on an... Do you believe anything I'm saying? I read all the emails myself. (laughs) I don't get that many. I mean, I get a lot of email, but I can deal with it. I'm coping. And I'm, uh, I'm grateful to you for writing in and for listening. Sam, thank you. I also have a a nice letter here from a listener named Caleb. He says, uh, Hey Brad, the first time I wrote to you, I was working as an early morning janitor or actually, you know what? I'm going to interrupt myself. I think we should have some music for this uh, letter. So let me get some music queued up here. So Caleb writes, Hey Brad, the first time I wrote you, I was working as an early morning janitor at the university where I had just earned a master's degree. I often listened to other people while hurrying to clean my area. Then I spent the rest of my shift hiding out in a water heater closet and working on a novel. I'm writing now to tell you that this novel, entitled Treeborn, sold to Picador last month. It'll come out in the summer of 2018. I listened to other people during a cross-country move, through stretches of unemployment at jobs I didn't really like, while walking my dog through neighborhoods that didn't feel like home, I needed this constant in my life, and many others too. Your monologues and conversations with writers and editors and agents made me feel less alone. They helped me come to terms with the struggle and despair and doubt associated with finishing a novel. I can't thank you enough for that. Signed, Caleb. Well, that is great news. And uh, I'm, I'm touched by that letter. Thank you very much, Caleb. I guess I should add, Caleb's last name is, is Johnson. For those of you out there, uh, I feel at liberty to mention it since he's an author and he's publishing a novel called Treeborn, due out next summer from Picador. Uh, that's very exciting news. That's like the ideal outcome, or one of the ideal outcomes of this show, that somebody listening is working on a book, aspiring to uh, complete a book, work of fiction, long-form nonfiction, whatever it happens to be, and that this show, in some small way, assists in that process. That's one of those things that in doing uh, this podcast, I sort of imagine. You know, you're hoping that that kind of thing happens, so it's nice to hear from someone for whom it has actually worked out that way. So thank you, Caleb, one more time, and congratulations. Mazel tov. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Michael Finkel, journalist and author. His new book is called The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. It's available now from Knopf. And I uh, just had a great time reading this book, had a great time talking with Michael Finkel from his home in Montana. So here he is, folks. This is Michael Finkel, and his book, one more time, is called The Stranger in the Woods. I have kind of known what I've wanted to do for a career, like, all my life. Um, my mom showed me this uh, journal I kept when I was, like, 10 years old and it said uh, I want to be a writer when I grow up who writes that who writes that when they're 10 years old um, I worked for my high school paper I worked for my college paper as soon as I graduated from uh, college I just wanted to write I didn't even want to be an editor I uh, got a job at skiing magazine because I like to ski and also because it had a small staff and they were offering me uh, uh, you know a chance to write I, I was offered a job by Sports Illustrated uh, you know a magazine that's much uh, better known, and I was like, "Nah, there's too many people there. I won't be able to write." I just wanted to, I just wanted to write articles. Worked for Skiing Magazine, did adventure travel, moved into much more serious journalism for the New York Times Magazine. Was fired from the New York Times Magazine, as you mentioned before. It was a, uh, I used a composite character in an, in an article about uh, slavery uh, accusations on the uh, cocoa plantations of West Africa, and was. Uh, Torp I thought my career was torpedoed. It was like, uh, there's no excuses for it. It was something I thought, oh, I'm going to use a creative uh, Hunter Thompson-esque storytelling method and neglected to tell my editors such and was fired and thought that was it. And then, oh, that was 16, 17 years ago and then have made a long, you know, careful effort to redeem myself by writing, you know, journalism that's uh, thoroughly nonfiction without any without any sort of uh, shenanigans. And, uh, you know, the result has been, you know, there's this, there was this book uh, about murderer took on my identity, you know, you know, that, that old story when the murderer takes on your identity. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's, let's slow down. Cause like, this is interesting stuff. You know, it's like, uh, you know, it's a mistake and it's a mistake. You're very honest about having made. And it's one that you are try you know, you've tried since to, uh, atone for, but it, it's also like you mentioned Hunter Thompson and you mentioned, uh, I mean, I guess like, what is it? New journalism, some of the liberties that journalists like he, uh, you know, take in their work. Uh, I mean, at least I think, right. There's some fictionalization like that. The line is blurry in, in the work of some of these people. 
And I can at least imagine how you might have thought, well, you know, the, the, the subjects that I've been interviewing are kids and they're shy. And rather than try to, you know, you know, deal with each one individually, I'll just kind of blend them together. It's all, I mean, I can see how that, how you could have rationalized that to yourself. Now, my question is like, how did Hunter Thompson get away with it? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, are the standards different nowadays? Are they different from different from publication to publication? Or is it was it simply just the issue of you not telling your editor um, that this was the yeah. case? I can't speak for anybody else. Um, you know, I, we don't even have to. We can't even. We can touch the minefield of like fake news accusations, but let's just leave that to the side. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a thousand different storytelling methods that uh one can use and i chose it you know i was it was it was like a conscious choice i feel like ashamed about it to this day um the only thing i can say i can't speak about anyone else is that since that time since the new york times incident and being fired i have found this beautiful sweet spot in which i am utterly hewn stuck to the absolute truth and what I mean by that is just verifiable, triple fact-checked things are in my article. If I'm 99% sure of something that's not good enough, I cut it out. And it's actually been bizarrely and wondrously sort of freeing. Like I used to worry about where is this assignment going? What's this story going to – where is this going to end up? And now I don't care at all because it's just whatever happens, happens. It's just – I found like a – Sound like I burst through the other side of something, and I, I just really want to make a just a blanket statement that this book, Stranger in the Woods, and my previous book, True Story, the trick of them is that there's absolutely no trick. There's, it's not fake news. It's absolutely true. It's as it's as clean as nonfiction is uh, is capable of being. You know, I'm human. Maybe there's a mistake in there, but uh, it's like I find myself actually more relaxed about writing now than than ever before, and just knowing that it's it's, it's got to be it's got to be triple checked. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, and it's funny too. You talk about like, uh, new journalism, you talk about, uh, you know, like being, um, really wed to orthodoxy and, and like you say, like hewn to the facts a hundred percent. Uh, it makes me think of conversations I've had so many times with authors talking about creative freedom, issues of creative freedom, but then also thinking, and, and of course that implies that like you can take creative liberties, nobody's lording over you, you can take risks, you know, these kinds of things tend to go along with that kind of conversation. But then I've also read in the past interviews with artists and, and right now my mind goes to Lorne Michaels, um, which might seem like a leap, but he's talking about doing comedy on network television, which comes with its own set of strictures. You know, you're not allowed to just go crazy and drop F-bombs and do really graphic sexual content. Like he's limited in terms of his palette, but he says that that he, he said something very similar to what you just said, that the limitations placed upon him by that arrangement actually in a way um, are kind of freeing or, you know, cause him to feel a certain um, creativity. You know, it's, it's, it's like confinement or limiting yourself to a certain set of colors on the palette can in its own way help the cause. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I've been a journalist for 27 years, so it's like some combination of veteran status, a crazy topsy turvy career, having been fired. Uh, so, you know, my current book, stranger in the woods, I keep getting these questions. No, don't you wish Chris Knight had said this, or don't you wish this? And I'm like, 
when I hear that question, I sort of smile because I was like, I wish nothing. Whatever he wanted to say, whatever happened, it was like very relaxing. And uh, I've, you know, as I said before, like uh, feel almost more creatively free by having the walls of the house built so solidly. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, um, you know, it's also there's also really interesting uh, biography here to trace because when you were fired um, by the New York Times magazine, wasn't it the day of your firing that you found out that your I, your identity had been stolen by uh, a most wanted, like one of the FBI's most wanted criminals? Is that correct? It was within hours. And again, again you know, the old cliche, the truth is stranger than fiction. If I was making this up, this is, I would make it a little more believable than it actually is. But yes, the, literally the day that my firing from the New York Times was going to be made public um, by an editor's note on the online edition of the New York Times and then also the print version, I received this call from a reporter from the Portland Oregonian who I was sure was going to call me to ask about being fired. And he tells me that a guy that was on the 10 most wanted list for murder had just been arrested in Mexico. And my name's Mike Finkel, where he was telling everyone his name was Mike Finkel and that he was a reporter for the New York Times. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I've repeated this story a couple of times and it never fails to blow my brain apart. I, I still can't believe that that's actually true. Like, Sorry. So what was your response in the moment? Did you think you were being punked? I mean, like you're dealing with, you're reeling from being fired and then you get this call saying that a, a murderer has assumed your identity and has been arrested in Mexico. <laughs> like, I don't even understand how a person could process that. What was your response? I remember it, this moment, I remember exactly where I was and I remember it completely vividly. You know, I was, I took my career extremely seriously. I wasn't married. I didn't have any children at the time. I really, where my career ended and myself began was a blurry line and I had just been fired and I was pretty certain that I would never be able to be a writer again and I have no other skills. I'm not even a good bartender or waiter. There was like nothing else and I get this call it wasn't really so much like a feeling like I was being punked, but I remember, you know, it was like confused for a long time, like 45 seconds of just being confused. It seems like a long time in the moment. Like, what are you talking about? You're talking about me being fired. No, I'm talking about the murders. What do you mean? And finally it was, we were both confused. He had no idea I'd been fired and I had no idea that a murderer had taken on my identity and the reporter figured I already knew about this murderer taking on my identity. And I figured the reporter already knew that I was about to be fired by the New York times. So we danced around each other. And then when it was finally clear, it was less, of course, less clear than it ever was before. Like what? What? And then this, you know, you can get fired from being a reporter, but you can't like take away one's repertorial instincts. And immediately I remember this like wave of, I have a million questions. I need to get to the bottom of this and felt like, for the first time in since, you know, the, the whole firing process took several terrible weeks. For the first time, I felt there was actually like ground beneath my feet. Like I felt like a reporter, like I got to know about this. And my life was forever changed from that from that phone call. And that led to the writing of uh, your book. It's True Story. Yeah, it's called True Story. It's a slightly tongue in cheek title. The book is, you know, completely, you know, completely fact checked. But the main character is a pathological, psychopathic liar, murderer. And it was then made into a movie starring James Franco and uh, and uh, Jonah Hill, correct? Indeed, that that came out relatively recently, 2015. It was not a smash hit. <laughs> hey, but it got made. That's cool. Yeah, I watched the whole. Yeah, it got made. It only took a mere ten years. Yeah, it was okay. So let's. I want to. I want to go backwards a little bit here, and I want to ask you 
about this sensation that you have when you know that you have your hooks in a good story. Uh, I'm always fascinated by how writers of long-form journalism find their subjects. And it always seems like there's, it, it, seem, it often seems like there is an element of serendipity to it. It's kind of a stumbling into, uh, like, how does it work for you? I mean, in this case, obviously it, it sort of fell out of the sky, but like, what does it, what does it usually look like? Or is there, is there a, a pattern to it? I'm glad you asked this question. I'm actually interested too. I've always thought, uh, I'm only, I'm, I, I'm probably have more expertise to discuss like how photographers work because I'm always paired with a photographer on many of my assignments, especially National Geographic ones. Wait, what did you was, hear that? Yeah, what was did that? Did you hear that music? We might have to interrupt this podcast. I, I like, got a notice from uh, Burning Man that it is now my turn. Oh, wait, you're going to get Burning Man tickets right now. Oh, holy moly, holy moly. Let's just see that none available. None available. So I just officially have been rejected from burning tickets. <laughs> I just went at 43 minutes after the hour. So there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Michael Finkel will not be attending Burning Man 2017. At least not with these tickets. So that was a beautiful, like, there wasn't that like a, like a sort of a serenade sort of like congratulatory musical interlude. Yeah. And now there's it, a, it, it, it seemed triumphant to me, but it, it should have been like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> they let you down easy with the Burning Man people do. <laughs> Okay, so I would like to announce that no tickets or vehicle passes are available, and I'm about to press the red X. Okay, well, now, there's that. So you're, so you're saying that you usually travel with photographers, you know photography, and can explain how that works better than, what, journalism? Like, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like I could address a photography convention on how photographers find their photos and how they work, and I have no idea how writers work. I'm never paired with a writer. I don't really have that many writer friends. Uh, so I can only speak for myself, and I have no idea if I'm like right down the middle or a complete outlier. Um, you mentioned serendipity. Uh, I guess... I don't even know what they teach in journalism school. How do you find a story? It's like uh, I'm a magazine guy, which means if it's a daily news story, it's I reject it. Um, if it's already been covered too well by something else, I reject it. So I sort of scout around for like stories that are fascinating, undercovered, could still be interesting in the three months to five months it takes to do an, to make an article come out. Um, and really what it comes down to, as you sort of implied, is this – feeling like there's more there and i'd say for every hundred times i get the feeling that there's more there there's not more there so it's a very inefficient process my wife sometimes says uh, how much are you getting paid for that whole entire day's work and i you know grand total of zero right just uh, just looking for ideas but i spend a lot of time doing that and you have to read a lot you have to pay attention you have to have your antenna up and know what's happening i mean are there like esoteric websites or are you like on FARC, like looking for weird human interest story? You know what I'm saying? Like, is there any like set of resources that you tend to go back to or is it less defined than that? It's so undefined. It's, uh, there are times I'm, I'm, I've really been continuously working on a story for my entire career. So it, obviously there's, uh, always something in the pipeline, but I will literally sit down sometimes and put into Skype, Amazing story. Just see what comes up and just start from there and then just go wander around, uh, you know, an incredible human being. Like, just see what happens. You mean, in, like, you mean in Google? I think you said yeah. Skype. 
Oh, sorry. I'm looking at, at in, I apologize. Into Google. Yeah. Like incredible story or amazing human being, or I can't believe this is true. Like a weird phrase like that and just see where it goes. Uh, now I think I've given away my secret. There you go. <laughs> That's all I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Goodbye. <laughs> Um, so, and, and then with true story and with the film adaptation, I mean, these things always take forever. And so that, that sounds like par for the course, but did, were you privy to that process at all? Like, were you involved? Very little. Um, the, I guess I was one of the main characters in the film and I think the producers were concerned that I would meddle. And so they basically asked me not to, I had dinner with the director and Jonah Hill. And it was fascinating. It was like one of those long New York dinners. We ended up a little bit inebriated, but, uh, he had, uh, Jonah had a bunch of questions for me. And the implication I got was, all right, I've met you. Uh, I answered all my questions. Now let me go and do my own, um, version of you. And I was fine with that. I sort of understood it. I went to the set one day and got to watch, uh, watch everyone in action. But really I was just basically had like a front row seat to a movie. I wasn't uh, heavily involved. And what was it like to watch yourself be portrayed on screen? Oh, man. <laughs> I have got to watch that film between the two slits of my, like, my middle finger and my index finger. Like, <laughs> I cannot, you know, it's too, uh, that's, first of all, that story is so, well, I'm almost ready to talk about my, uh, my new book because that story, true story, I threw myself into it. But it's the, the nice thing about being a writer is that you can do your work and you can, like, run away and someone else can read it while they're in their bed. You don't have to look at them. I'm not an actor. I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, performing in front of someone. And that story is so heartrending and uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I basically became friends with a murderer. You know, he killed his wife and three young children. I have a wife and three young children. It, the, if you're creeped out listening to this, I'm creeped out talking about it. And, uh, you know, and then this guy took on my identity and then Jonah Hill became me. And, you know, and then it's on the screen and the layers of craziness and, uh, po you know, postmodernism and weirdness uh, all sort of coalesce when I I've only watched the film maybe three times and I squirmed all three times through it. It's a, it's a, it's a fine film. I actually think both actors did an excellent job, but I can't watch it in any degree of comfort. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And you know, it brings up, let, let's, let's talk about your new book. And I like, there's a common thread here that I can't help but point out, uh, in that you, you know, in both books, uh, you know, stranger in the woods and true story, you're corresponding with a man in prison named Chris. Yeah. So what's up with that? Like, do, do you, do you think about that? Have you psychoanalyzed that a little bit? So I corresponded with a guy named Chris in jail, but really after that surface, uh, similarity, or maybe even slightly deeper than surface similarity, I really, the two guys could not be more different. Let's see. Chris Longo, he's the murderer. He's the guy who killed his wife and three kids is like I said before, a classic psychopath who is on death row in in Oregon and deserves to be there. Now, I do, you know, the uh, the subject of my new book, Chris Knight, is one of the most gentle sort of sort of introverted shy souls he has he despite the fact that he committed several break-ins, he has not a violent bone in his body. The two men could not possibly be more different. My feelings about the two men could not possibly be more different. It's sort of funny that they are obviously going to be compared because I wrote about them both, but in my mind, they're like hemispheres apart. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about a stranger in the woods. Chris Knight is uh, a hermit. I mean, is that a correct assessment? 
I don't even know how to assess Chris Knight. So the the subject of the book is a guy named you know Christopher Knight, who I, I mean, there's like 12 things about his life story that boggle the, the imagination. He left the world at age 20, which is really, really young, and never got another bit of advice from an elder again for the rest of his life, which is mind boggling. He left the world at age 20. He abandoned his car, uh, the shores of Moosehead Lake in northern Maine, the stuck his keys in the center console and walked into the woods with like a little bit of clothing, barely any food at the age of 20 and didn't come out for nearly three decades. He lived a life of Utter, the survival story is mind-boggling. Like if he was if he was with a bunch of guys and just survived, the survival story would be one of the greatest survival stories. The story of one's hermitage and solitude, as crazy as it sounds, is possi- he's possibly the most the the person who's spent the most time in solitude as anyone I've encountered in all of human history, and it's just true. Like there's just no one else who's gone that long without someone checking up on them. And seeing if they're okay. And then there's like a true crime story. The man was like a master thief, Houdini style. He had like this code of ethics for thieving. He never broke a window or kicked in a door. It had to be this pristine, beautiful way of thieving. Then has an incredible mind. He's he's brilliantly intelligent. And then, of course, there's people's reaction to him. And then there's the grand question of why and how. And then what happens to a dude who's been completely by himself for 27 years and has dropped back into our 27 247 crazy society. So I, you know, just a couple things. Yeah, well, how did you come how did you come upon this story? Like how did this how did Chris Knight uh, like come up did he show up on your computer screen Were you reading news about him and then Yeah, I've spent most of my life in Bozeman, Montana and I uh, again as I mentioned before was sort of I think this one was on my phone just sort of looking at odd news reports and saw this story about a guy who was captured in central Maine and every paragraph of the story was Maybe it was like a five paragraph little little article and every paragraph was like, I, I got to know more. What about this? It was like, you know, caught, no fire, never talked to anyone, never spent any money, used an indoor toilet, seen the Internet, made a phone call. But there was this last paragraph in my mind was sort of envisioning someone who was probably crazy and really not worth talking to and then the very last paragraph said he oh yeah by the way he also stole in addition to like hamburger meat and flashlights like thousands upon thousands of books books and i was like i gotta know more yeah yeah i mean like the, there's so many aspects of his existence out there uh you know first of all no fires you're in maine you're in the winter in maine <laughs> uh it's it's incredible to me that the man survived uh, that's really, that's some brutal cold. Uh, and I'm, I'm recalling like the description in your book about how he would wake himself up at like two in the morning in the depths of winter and force himself to get up and walk around so that he wouldn't freeze to death. Like this was just his nightly routine, you know, <laughs> it's like, how can that be enjoyable? You know, I'm a camper and I really love spending time outside. And so before we even got, uh, you know, so I, I was first I started a, an epistolary relationship with Chris Knight. We wrote each other letters back and forth. And then I visited him in jail many times, nine times in total. And so we really formed, well, you can never call it a friendship because Chris is such an unusual person. But we really had a relationship of sorts. And I was interested in the why and the philosophical underpinnings of his hermitage. But the nuts and bolts were, was really what we started out talking about. And like, how do you survive without a fire? And... The man is blessed with an incredible mind. He said he didn't have a photographic memory. He just remembered everything. But he was, you know, not a, you know, not only able to 
quote Shakespeare or Edna St. Vincent Millay, uh, you know, at the drop of a hat, but also understood, you know, everything from theoretical physics to how to you know repair electrical um, items and, you know, sort of solved all these problems. Uh, you remember uh, Into the Wild, the protagonist, Chris McCandless, uh, he did not survive one winter. Um, he, 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 he didn't was, even, he didn't survive a summer. <laughs> yeah, he, he survived maybe four or five months and he died. And Chris Knight lasted 27 years and came out of the woods strong as an ox. He solved problems in extraordinarily creative ways, but also his mission was it's really mind boggling. His mission was to be utterly alone in the deepest, most profound way. There is just no way anyone listening can truly get their head around it. Humans do not like to be alone. Uh, in the course of researching this book, and I spent a man, I spent three years full time to write 191 pages. That is not fast. Uh, you know, I really took this story. Uh, I mean, it has its humorous elements, but I took this story as seriously as possible. It's a story that needs no embellishment, exaggeration, mistakes. It had to be uh, had to be done right. Um, we don't like to be alone, man. I talked. I started talking to people. Like, what's the longest you ever been alone? And, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, no talking to anyone, no emailing, no phone calls, no text message. I, let's everyone out there just think about what's the longest you've ever been alone. And I'm pretty sure, at least nine out of ten people have never spent one day alone. We're scared of it. We don't like it. There's only one person you can ever really know in the whole world, and that is yourself, and we're frightened of it. <laughs> we are. I know. I, know. I mean, like, it's funny because I think, you know, you ask that question now, and I, I think you, you bring it up in some form in the book. And uh, I spent, uh, and my listeners are going to laugh because I talk about this in this show uh, many times, but I spent three months on the Appalachian Trail when I was just out of college. And when I when I think back on it, I always say it's like the hardest thing I ever did. And it was because not only of the physical rigors, but the solitude, uh, the time alone, it was me and my dog for three months. And, you know, you're obviously passing people on the trail. So it's, you know, there is some interaction, but I remember just that, like that alone, just like walking past somebody and saying hello was so exciting to me because a great majority of the time I was just locked inside my head. And remembering like every episode of my childhood and, you know, the, the brain left to its own devices tends to go berserk. You know, that's the, that's the hard part I think is learning to be alone with yourself. And, and clearly he had no problem <laughs> with that part I mean, of it. I love what you said. I, before this article or before this, uh, idea, before I even knew who Chris Knight was, I clearly had this idea in my mind. I went to a 10 day silent retreat in India. Now there were other people there, so I wasn't technically alone, but I wasn't able to speak a word, make a hand gesture, even make eye contact. Um, you had to sit within yourself all day, every day. You even had, you weren't allowed to read, um, no, not allowed to write. And it was 10 days long and it was incredibly horrible. I hated it. It was so difficult. You think just doing nothing for 10 days. I mean, I've been in so many uh, risky situations as a journalist and uh, even as a mountaineer, uh, and nothing was like just being by yourself. It's, it's unsettling and profound and frightening, and we are all scared of it, maybe for good reason, but 
that's really where a lot of fascination, I mean, it makes like life richer. Like it's, it, we're, we're scared of like the deepest and most important things. Well, I mean, it's where you confront your own suffering, you know, like once you're sitting alone with just your mind, you know, you're inevitably going to come up against your fears and your regrets and insecurities and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what comes up, at least for me. And, uh, you know, it's not all, all that's, that's not all that comes up, but that's the stuff that I think we tend to want to get away from. And, um, you know, you talk about Chris Knight and you talk about, um, I don't know, just that your reaction to him in meeting him and that sense of quiet, uh, like, did, I mean, and maybe you could speak to this. Like, do you, did you sense that he had arrived at some sort of spiritual understanding for lack of a better way of putting it, that most people, don't ever arrive at by way of his solitude. Um, am I putting it, I mean, you know, would he bristle at, at such a suggestion? Would he embrace it? Like, what do you think? Oh, he would certainly bristle at such a, such a suggestion. I think that's one of the reasons why it's probably slightly true. I don't want to imbue Chris Knight with any attributes that he doesn't deserve. But, and he himself said, you know, first of all, he said, don't romanticize me, Mike. You know, I was, I'm a thief. I stole got to take the good with the bad. And then he said, you know, I didn't, I wasn't trying to prove any point. I wasn't even interested in anything in the outside world. And it's just exactly these kind of statements that made me more interested. He was like, he despised Thoreau who basically, you know, went to the woods for a mere two years. His mother did his laundry. He wrote a book about it. You know, it was really, you know, when he thinks about Thoreau, he's like, you know, all Thoreau did was basically shout at the world. Look at how great I am. I put my I put my words in a book and now you're going to spend money to buy it. Ha ha. Look at me. And Chris Knight found that to be repulsive. He did his own thing. He had this very radical idea about how he wanted to live and he basically fulfilled it completely. He fulfilled his greatest, craziest dream more fully than most of us. I'll just speak for myself more fully than I and probably you ever will and the fact that he didn't give a crap whether whether i whether i was you know what meaning i got from it what 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 insights i tried to put onto him he didn't care about any of that he didn't do it for any of us that makes it even more pure and more beautiful and you can't help after encountering someone like knight whether actually in jail or maybe through the pages of his story and think about your own choices. And I think it's that very fact that he didn't do it at all for anyone else that makes it extremely powerful to the rest of us. I don't know if that even makes sense, but I'm just telling you how I feel. No, I get it. I get it. Like he had no, like there was, he didn't, he wasn't thinking of a book deal. He didn't want anyone to know where he was. He, he would still be out there had he not been caught. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, he, he was going to go yeah, his, his whole life in, yeah. in, in anonymity. In the age of, in the 21st century, in the age of Facebook and Twitter, he was going to leave behind nothing. Not a picture, not a thought. There wouldn't be any damn book written about him. It would have been this unbelievable piece of private performance art. I guess it, it was artistic. It was, it, it's unbelievable. It can't, you cannot get your head around it. And that's what makes it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, I think about what he had to deal with in terms of the elements. And it's easy, I guess, for somebody living, I mean, I'm living in Los Angeles, which is about as far removed from Northern Maine as you can get. 
uh, and I, I think about all that he had to deal with just to get by, you know, facing starvation, stealing food and supplies, worrying about whether or not he's going to freeze to death at night and whatnot. And yet there's a part of me that envies him. <laughs> um, and I have this, you know, I, I, you know, you don't want to romanticize, but I think I do have that impulse a little bit when it comes to people who live uh, in these radical ways and who live in close contact with nature and who have access to that, sil- that kind of silence that you can only get in the natural world. Um, it's very appealing to me until, of course, like I'm out there and then I'm like, oh, shit, I just want a hot shower. <laughs> you know? I mean, if I, if I took you to central Maine in winter and made you sit in his sight for two hours, you would cry. I would cry. We would, we would, we would not take it. I'm talking two hours. This guy sat there. And ideally, because he didn't want to even he didn't light a fire because he didn't want smoke to give his campsite away. He didn't want to leave even a single footprint in the woods. So ideally, he would stock up, meaning he went on a bunch of thieving raids in November before the first snow. And ideally, he would stay in his very small site in the middle of a thick woods without moving for six months. And while he read books and listened to the radio, mostly what he did is what you and I would say would term nothing. And he paced his site. Like you mentioned before, he woke up at 2.30 in the morning and would just pace the tiny perimeter of his site all night, every night, all winter for 27 winters. He never lost a finger or toe so much as a toenail to frostbite. He would melt a little snow to make drinking water. So this seems like incredible suffering. Now, when I asked him, what did it feel like? Like, how did you feel? Here's where it just all got sort of skewed into outer orbit. He said to me he loved it. He was so satisfied and content. Let me just go and say he was happy. He expressed more joy. Chris Knight expressed more joy about his life than almost anyone I meet out here. He went to the woods because he'd never felt comfortable around other people, and he stayed because he loved it. He said, and this sort of sentiment has been repeated by many, many people who've written about solitude. He said he was never for an instant bored. He said he didn't even understand the definition of boredom. But more deeply, he said he was never for an instant lonely. And in fact, and I'm not capturing the poetry of his words here. I'm just paraphrasing. I tried to capture his beautiful way of speaking in the book. But he said, He felt the opposite of loneliness. He felt entirely and utterly connected to like the entire universe. He was completely fulfilled. And it is really hard to get to, to, you know, I think I've said this before, to just conceive of that. But it's exactly true. Wow. And and can you describe for listeners uh, a little bit about his spot in the woods? Because to exist out there for as long as he did, he had to have uh, a special spot you know it's a kind of hidden away hard to access and uh it did have some wind blockage like i'm trying to repicture it in my head based on your descriptions but why don't you talk about what it actually looks like yeah so i've been a journalist for 27 years and normally when you get closer to the source of a story it becomes more believable more understandable people start explaining it and this is one of these cases where The closer I got to North Pond in central Maine, where this guy hid out for 27 years, the less people believed it. 
I will get to his site in a moment, but just like we'll, we'll cover this. Like people said to me, how is it possible a guy could go 27 years without seeing a doctor? How is it, you know, what happens when you put food in a campsite? Animals come and rip it apart. That doesn't seem possible. There's this famous storm in Maine called the Great Ice Storm of 1998. And many people said to me, if he, that guy was really out there, he would have surely frozen to death. Now, we'll cover those in a minute. My question was, you know, this guy was not living in the great north woods of Maine. This guy lived for more than a quarter century on private property in a rural part of Maine, but there were like 300 cabins around and little towns and dirt roads crisscrossing. I was like, how is it possible that a guy could really be there for 25 years without being spotted? Now, I'm sorry for rambling on, but you've got to know about his site. So I went and found it. Whew, man, I've lived in Montana for a long time and spent a lot of time in the woods. I know how to walk through the woods. I have never been in woods thicker, nastier, more difficult to navigate than the woods where Chris Knight was hidden. It was like, imagine walking through a giant Brillo pad. It was like these thick interlocked trees, no trails, and then everywhere, all over the ground is these enormous automobile-sized boulders that were left there when the glaciers retreated. They were basically glacially uh, deposited rock. You cannot move through these woods without sounding like a bull in a china shop. Um, and this guy could move silent through, silently through there. It's like it was like a like he moved like a cat, according to the one police officer that that arrested him and, and followed him back to his site the night of his arrest. And he had carved out this room in the middle of this forest, and I found it. And again, I will never forget the moment that I went around this rock and entered this room. It is magical. It's like there's even a ceiling. The, 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 the tree branches interlink over the top. But just imagine a cube of forest removed from the densest forest your mind can imagine. And it had the sounds of the forest were there. You know, Maine has horrible windstorms, but yet the wind would only just trickle through just enough to knock down the mosquitoes, not enough to give you frostbite. And uh, I, I, right here sitting and talking to you, I am craving just spending a few minutes in that place. I, I went there eight times. I spent the night there alone um, five times. And, and once I found a site and I saw like these clotheslines that trees had like grown around, it takes like multiple years and decades to do that. You know, there was not a charred piece of wood. I knew he hadn't lit a fire. A lot of what he had said to me was came into crisp focus. I knew he was telling the truth. And what about, yeah, I mean, like, and he had, didn't he sleep on a mattress? I mean, he, he had managed to lug a lot of supplies back there and make it habitable, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, so Chris and I graduated high school uh, and took one job, which happened to be uh, pretty, it, it ended up being very beneficial to his later uh, life. He uh, was installing automobile and vehicle alarm systems and um, was able, he had a code of, of, of stealing ethics. He never broke into a full-time home on, homes, only these cabins that were used for mostly during the summertime and owned by multiple families. And he, he picked locks like Houdini-esque style. He never did any vandalism and he would uh, steal uh, the basics of what he needed and books. And as you mentioned, he slept actually somewhat comfortably. He stole a uh, small mattress and the way he stole it was sort of incredibly uh, took a door's hinges off because it was very heavily deadbolted, you know, opened the door from the hinge side, shoved the mattress out, put the door back together perfectly as if it was not touched and went out through a window. He really liked to leave a cabin uh, completely buttoned up. If he picked your front door lock um, and went in and took your hamburger meat, he made sure to set the handle so that it locked behind him so that other thieves 
could not get in. <laughs> well, he didn't want to. He had to edge out the competition, right? <laughs> well, he just didn't want anyone taking your television or your computer or your jewelry or things like that. That would be, uh, you know, that would be what a real thief does. He just took your Stephen King novel and your uh, T-bone steak. Yeah, it's hard for me to like. It's weird, you know, because like stealing is stealing, and he's as hard on himself as anybody. Um, you know, but I feel like he's way harder on himself than even I am. I, I, I get though that he. He did ruin the peace of mind of the people who lived in those parts and had summer cabins there and whatnot, because they had no idea if he was a, you know, a, a real criminal or, or a violent criminal, I should say, or something like that. So, you know, that's the part of it that I think is most damning. But for a guy who just is uncomfortable around people and wanted nothing more than to be left alone, uh, I, I find it e kind of easy to be sympathetic with him, just like stealing some hamburger meat and... I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a weird, it's a weird softness I feel toward a guy who's obviously guilty of so many crimes. Right. And this is actually an interesting point because I feel softly towards him too, warmly towards him. Even the arresting officer, even the prosecuting attorney, the person who was trying to put him in jail, felt felt kindly to him. But I really think we just just to take like a 45 second detour here. I think it's wouldn't be fair if I didn't say like, listen, it's not the hamburger meat this guy took. It's not the, you know, it's not the flashlights. It's the, you know, people's sense of security and peace of mind. In many states in the United States, if someone comes into your house uninvited, doesn't matter what they're coming for, you can legally shoot them dead. It is that much of an intrusion. This guy tortured some people. Some people told me that the presence of this you know, nobody knew if he was a psychopath, if he was a, if he was armed and, he, you know, he never carried a weapon or if he was violent. Nobody knew. There was this number of people on the pond who told him it was like the worst thing that ever happened in their life, that this guy would keep coming into their cabin, even if he was just taking minor things. On the other hand, there was a whole group of people who told me, oh, what are you kidding? After the first break in, when I saw what was missing, you know, my sh couple of packets of sugar in a you know, my, my National Geographic collection and all my valuables were there. He was, to quote somebody, no more trouble than the seasonal house flies. Of course, I wasn't scared. Of course, it was fine. And the reactions to him ran the gamut from utter hatred to almost worshipful reverence. And nobody's wrong. And I just find that, and, and again, that's another reason why I really liked working on this project, this book project. You know, how you feel about Chris Knight says, you know, more about you than I think it does about him and nobody's wrong yeah and he did have i mean there are these uh it's a great scene in the book where you're talking about like his like minimal interaction with other human beings in the 27 years he spent out uh in the woods i mean he, he like the, the thing about it too is that like geographically he was he was positioned close to some form of civilization he could hear the buzzing of boats out on the pond uh from his from his little um encampment or whatever but he didn't interact, you know, he didn't want to be seen and, uh, yet he was close to it. And then there, there is, a, you know, an instance where he did, and I'd love to hear you, um, talk about that a little bit because that's, I mean, 27 years you're out there with absolutely no one. And then suddenly you're face to face with another human being. I mean, it's got, it's almost got to seem like an alien sighting, not, not for that, not for the people that he saw, but for him, you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you... Like, I find it weird to deal with human beings when I've been alone for like a day. You know, it takes me a little bit to get warmed up again. I cannot imagine how it has been for him having to reenter society after all this time away. 
I mean, he was fanatical about his solitude. I guess in the course of 27 years, he definitely heard people and probably saw them through like windows. His encampment, if you knew you were, where you were going through the woods and only Chris Knight knew where he was going through the woods, but you could get to the nearest cabin, which by the way, he never broke into, in three minutes. Um, and still nobody found it in 25 years, which by the way, is completely comprehensible once you step foot in those woods you go two feet in you're like I'm, i get forget it man i'm getting out of there's filled with thorns and poison ivy and bugs and you know you just get out of there not even deer really go through there very often um yeah and so uh, in the in his 27 years he had one time went around the corner uh and encountered another hiker that he hadn't expected and he said one syllable which was hi and <laughs> Even after that, sort of decided he would no longer walk, walk through the woods during the day and never on a trail. Like he changed his whole system up because of that one syllable. And then right before he was caught, sort of the laws of averages caught up with him and uh, these ice fishermen that were chomping through the woods uh, after a day of ice fishing came very close to his encampment and he stepped out and there was a sighting. He, the ice fisherman said he might have said a few words. He said he just verbally, uh, I mean, he non-verbally gestured, but he was he was actually arrested three months later. And so um, you're right. Like now this guy's taken from the woods, locked in a cage and, and then brought into society. And it, w what an incredible shock to the system. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, I was going to say, so there, that's when you, I mean, you pick up the thread at his arrest and then suddenly you're uh, sending the guy a letter and you're flying out to Maine and... Yeah, like you weren't even, you were not invited. You just showed up, correct? And tried to just, like on a lark, you're like, I'm going to try to visit this guy in prison. I never get invited anywhere. Um, <laughs> I, I, as I mentioned, I think earlier, you know, uh, I was waiting for him to tell somebody uh, what, something about his experiences in the wood. And, and for the first month after his arrest, he said absolutely nothing. And that's when I wrote him a letter and he responded to my letter. Um, you know, the easiest thing in the world for him to do would have just been to throw it out along with many of the dozens of other letters he received. But he responded uh, for various reasons. It might even just be as simple as that I wrote it by hand rather than typed it. And, uh, you know, the the insights he offered into his letter, I just knew he was he was, he was extremely uh, he was he had a, quite a story to tell. But he told me that uh, he, the conditions in jail were just killing him and that it got to a point where he couldn't even concentrate long enough to write and then said goodbye and i waited several weeks and even wrote a few like worried letters like chris chris you okay and never heard back and uninvited as you emphasized <laughs> uh i flew from montana to maine and just figured what's the worst thing that can happen i wasted a plane ticket and i tried to visit a guy and he rejected my visit he rejected other people's visits i felt okay with it because knight had all the power i didn't knock on his front door or force myself into him i just said i was there and all he had to do was say no thank you and i would be sent packing but he agreed to see me and so okay so you go into the jail and before i, I continue i do want to ask you, you you made the decision to write him a note by hand like was why like did you think about that or was that just the way you did it yeah, I mean, I'd love to. I'd love to tell you that I have this like master plan when it comes to articles or things like that, but I have no master plan. It's just a. I, I go from the gut, you know. It's like uh, if five hundred people are going to try and contact someone, you might as well try something different. What's the, you know, again, what's the worst thing that happened? It just you just get stuck on the pile with the four hundred ninety nine others. So I just felt like, oh, this is clearly a scenario where 
you've got to put pen on paper. And even like, even he said to me, it felt very personal, even though there was not much personal stuff in it. Just, just seeing like, you know, when you write on paper, you can tell how, where you've crossed out or where the mistakes are. And I don't, I don't think there were any cross outs. I literally wrote from my head to the hand and it's kind of raw. It's kind of not very pretty writing. I wouldn't want to see it uh, published in a book because it would be embarrassingly not well written because, you know, prose is polished, but there's something very raw about that that might have appealed to him. Yeah, I think, no, I'm a big fan of handwritten letters. I think there's an impact. I, I mean, when you get one, when somebody writes you a letter by hand, it always means more. Always, always. It's true. And it's like a lost art. And now I'm giving away my secret to your listeners. So <laughs> nobody, everybody continue typing, please. I just <laughs> I don't want any more competition. So, okay. So you get to this prison uninvited just and and you uh yeah yeah and they uh they you know they go back and they talk to chris and they say michael finkel is here to see you and he agrees to come out and talk to you like what was that a moment like when he you know because it's it's the traditional thing you're on like two sides of a sheet of glass right and you got the phones or whatever and you're talking to him yeah i'm sitting there in the waiting room like uh, of a jail. I had, had checked in saying, you know, it's, it's visiting hour started at six o'clock. I came a little early, checked in, said, I'm here to see Chris Knight and just sat in this waiting room. There's all these slamming noises coming through the cinder block walls. And I'm like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm a little nervous, of course. And then this guard comes into the room and says like, night. And I stand up and he like, he has his hand held like a metal, uh, metal detecting wand to see if I have any weapons. He wands me front and back and he opens this little maroon door and the lights are much dimmer in this uh, little room than they are in the visiting room which had these bright fluorescent lights so it took like a moment for my eyes to adjust and i hear this door like slam behind me so i'm like locked in and like of course my heart leaps into my throat i'm just nervous it's a very uncomfortable situation and it's this room is the size of maybe a couple of telephone booths put together it's divided in half by a a thick plexiglass window and there's these old-fashioned black phone receivers hanging on the wall and on my side of the room there's a stool bolted to the ground and i and on the other side through the through the glass on another stool is uh, Christopher Knight, and he had agreed to see me. And so, and what was it like? I mean, you know, you're looking at him; he's looking at you. Like from the from the book, you know, he's not an easy person to access. I mean, obviously, and he's not gonna—he's not a warm, friendly, friendly guy. He doesn't want to talk to people generally. And you know, I, my heart went out to him when I thought about him in prison, like having a roommate. You know, after being out in the woods all alone, suddenly you're in a cell with another person. Um, I believe that was the case, right? Or at least maybe Absolutely. And I, I hear Chris Knight in my ear as you're saying that saying to me, well, don't feel bad for me. I deserved it. I yeah. was a thief. Yeah. Don't hey, hey, I think you're romanticizing me. Well, no, this brings, yeah. this brings up an interesting question. Cause like, you know, on the off chance that he would listen to this interview, like the whole time I've been talking to you, I've been thinking in the back of my mind, like, Chris Knight hates me. <laughs> like he, he hates this. He doesn't, you know, it's like, I can feel him judging me in some way. Like I, I care about what he thinks you know, to a degree that, that to a degree that's like maybe beyond what I would normally. And I always care what people think, you know, it's kind of a, I don't know. It's a human, a human thing. But for some reason with him, there's a feeling of wanting to please, or there's also this, this, uh, this feeling of inferiority because like, my God, this guy did this. Like he's made of stronger stuff than I am. You know, the fact that he could live out there by himself like that, he must know shit that I don't know. And, uh, do, do you, you know what I'm saying? Like, did you feel that too? Or am I? No, I'm smiling. I, if you could see me now, I have this funny, like bemused look because the truth is before Chris Knight was 
left the world, he was really interested in computers. You might think he was like this technophobe, but in fact, he was an early adopter. And even mentioned to me while we were meeting that the internet and things like email seemed like a great idea. It's a way to communicate without actually showing your face. So this is a long-winded way of saying there's a solid chance Mr. Knight is listening now. <laughs> and as you were saying that, I was you know, since I spent as much time with him as anybody, um, I was wondering why you were saying, well, this is what I think he's going to say about me. I was wondering, oh, I wonder what he would say about Brad. First of all, yeah, he's way more rugged than either of us. And I, you know, I don't know you that well, but he's certainly a hell of a lot smarter than me. But I don't think he would say that, that you were, I think you said, oh, you think I'm dumb or this and that. No, I, I don't think he would say that. I think he would say that he might feel bad for you because you're trying to imagine what this guy did. Why don't you just go and try it for yourself? He would... I sort of did. I mean, I gave it a shot. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it would be more charitable than I think you said. He's a... He's a... He holds himself to a really high standard. I mean, high standard would be an understatement. He held himself to like this... You know, he was like a stoic to the nth degree. I think, you know, Socrates would take a step back and say, after you, Chris Knight. Um, uh, but also is sort of understanding of other people's like desire to, to try what he dove into. And I might think he would be like, you know, that Brad guy, you know, he got it all wrong, but uh, his heart's in the right spot. That's fine. So, That's basically the story of my life right there. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Mine too. I lurch from here to there. I have no clear path, but maybe Knight would say, well, that's a good thing because there's no such thing as a path. That's just a delusion you've made up. Yeah. I mean, there, and it is this weird thing. I mean, it's like, I mean, I guess we all die alone. We all sort of fear solitude. We fear that, you know, there, there's an, there's like being human to be human is to be isolated in some way. Like you said earlier, like we are the only people we can ever truly know. One can only ever truly get to know oneself. And when given an opportunity to do that in an intense, in intense uh, way, we tend to recoil, <laughs> uh, you know, but then when somebody goes out and does it, you know, it, it seems to command a certain level of respect or at least, you know, curiosity. And there's kind of a cruel irony to the fact that it does command such curiosity, um, you know, in, in Chris Knight's case, because he doesn't want to be the subject of too much attention or any attention, you know? And so uh, part of his reentry into the world and part of his relationship with you um, has been to, to deal with that and to deal with people, I guess at least some people in Maine must know who he is, though I would imagine he's found ways to blend. I mean, have you been in touch with him since he's, I, I mean, I, in the book you talk about, uh, you know, uh, following up with him a little bit, but have you been in touch with him recently? Do you have any idea what he's up to and how he's doing? So, I mean, you said so many things that made me like smile, like, you know, I'm well aware that by the very nature of me writing a book about Chris Knight, I've somewhat ruined the perfection of his intention and i find that i find like i find some sort of oddity in that irony it's like it sort of makes it all work by ruining the project there was a project there would either be no project or there would be a ruined project ruined project there's something about that um so chris knight yeah he gave me his story his the most valuable thing that guy owns in the entire world is his story and he gave it to me for free 
he wanted no money in return. If I had given him money, that would have been a form of relationship and he wanted nothing. However, he did ask for something in return, which was that I leave him the heck alone. He told me exactly what he wanted to tell me. And there were many questions he didn't want to answer. And, you know, a guy who can be silent for 27 years is not about to be cajoled into speaking more than he wants. Um, so, he, so he won't guest on the podcast is what you're saying. <laughs> he won't. I'm just going to go out and say, you're absolutely correct. He will not appear on the podcast. Right. He may be listening now, Chris. Hi. Uh, but uh, he's not going to appear. He has nothing more to say in a weird way. You know, you might ask, well, why did he talk to you? Why did he talk to anyone? He's a smart guy, as we covered, and realized that if he told his story to one person, that might actually benefit his privacy, meaning that this is what he has to say. Here, world, the, the book is sort of his rampart. His, he could build a fence around his property by using my my books as uh, stakes. And like this is this is uh, this is what I have to say. Now, leave me alone. And and, and the nice thing about Central Maine is that people there are very respectful of uh, one's privacy. All I could say about Chris Knight is that when he was done telling me his story, of course I wanted to speak to him more. I said to him, please write me a letter if you have anything more to say. And he said, I will, and has not written me a letter and has been left really alone, which is I'm happy to report, and has he'll never find the, the, the utter satisfaction and sense of fulfillment that he found in his site in the woods. But then again, he doesn't have to steal. He's not living illegally. He's, you know, this is conjecture, but it's pretty close to right that he's carved out a spot for himself uh, on his family's property in central Maine where he's, he's okay. He's not as happy as he once was, but he's, he's not, he's, he's, he's not going to kill himself. And you don't think he's going to go back into the woods. I mean, I, that, I keep waiting to hear that in the news or at least that like cross, it, it does cross your mind. Like at some point, maybe he'll just, you know, save up some money, get some supplies, pack up and go. Like, would he, you think that's a possibility? Or you think he's going to remain in the civilian world? I, it feels like a, a nice thing to say. And I would like to agree with you. Like, ah, oh, that's a possibility that one morning I'm just going to wake up and there's going to be a news report that he's gone again into the, into the woods. I know for a fact that he wants to do that. He told me so in, his, in our last meeting, but I have a feeling, you know, he's over age 50. He's on a probation where if he breaks the law by stealing or, or anything, he can be put in the state penitentiary for seven years. I have a feeling he is just going to stay on his family's property and sort of, it's a little melancholy. I, I kind of wish for him to just like run free again, but I don't see it happening. And I don't know why this is just a gut feel. I, I would, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm also kind of projecting, but there's also part of me that wonders like when he took a hot shower, he had to be like, Oh, this is fucking nice. Like, this is great. <laughs> Maybe there's a part of him that like in coming back, like though it would be, he would be probably have a hard time admitting it. There have to be certain creature comforts that are enjoyable. Right. I mean, he slept on a, on a mattress. Uh, he, he, you know, he had Tommy Hilfiger, pillowcases when I, when I was uh, you know he has certainly high taste in literature he you know expressed many opinions about what books he likes and didn't so yeah you know he i guess his definition of creature comforts might be different you know 27 years with literally dumping cold water on his head for a shower gosh i would imagine but when you were saying that about the hot shower i again conjecture but as as close to as close to accurate as I guess you're likely to 
come, I was thinking, no, that's not it. That wasn't it. It wasn't the shower. I wonder what the, I wonder what creature comfort, maybe the fact that food could be available when he was hungry in winter, um, rather than just sort of going through the real, real tough stages of starvation. He went through deep, deep into hunger many times. And man, I've been, I've got a couple days without eating and it's not fun. Imagine going a couple weeks. He went right to the edge several times. Maybe that would be it. Maybe the hot shower. I'm not sure. It didn't strike me as that was the thing he missed. Well, yeah. And the thing too, is that like, it wasn't really the creature comforts of existence that he was most intent on avoiding. It was people. Yeah. And, and remember again, that he really, really liked his situation, even though all of us on the outside are probably just shaking our heads or scratching our heads. Like, Really? Uh, you'd, you'd spend like one winter night walking, pacing from 2 o'clock and 2.30 in the morning till dawn when it's still cold after the sun comes up. And you're like, that's it. I'm done for life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's – I don't want to get too deeply philosophical this deep into the podcast. But almost anyone who writes about suffering talks about there being a core of beauty in the middle of it. Right from the Tao Te Ching to the current day that there is like in, inside – inside suffering is pleasure and it's somewhat true yeah i mean and you know i think of uh you know i read i wound up reading some of the books that you read in your research for for uh stranger in the woods uh i wound up reading cave in the snow i just oh, finished yeah. that one the one about uh tenzin palmo i think is her name the british woman who became a buddhist nun and lived in a cave at thirteen thousand feet for 12 years and slept sitting up. <laughs> I mean, like I think it's, I laugh as I say it. I was like, it's like so unfathomable, but, um, I love that story. I mean, you, you basically touched on it. This woman who was born Diane Perry outside of London became, I think one of the first uh, Westerners to be ordained a Buddhist uh, nun lived in a cave high in the Himalayas. Let's just tell, let's just, just, just get into this a tiny bit, lived in a tiny cave in the Himalayas for 12 years as you said, slip, slept, never lay down. Seriously, she slept sitting up in what's called a meditation box. Um, was had incredibly cold weather. Now, unlike Chris Knight, she had people come and uh, right. deliver supplies to her, check in on her. I think she left a few times to teach some classes. I mean, this is not to take away from her. She spent ninety nine percent of twelve years alone in a cave, but had plenty. You know, answered mail. But these are all minor, minor things. But here's a fascinating thing. What was her reaction to living 12 years in that cave without le ever lying down once? And um, it, it, those winters in the Himalayas last like seven or eight months. She said, quote, it was the easiest thing in the world. And she also said, I was like, just like uh, Chris Knight, I was never bored. I was not, even, not even across her mind. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, I would really like to know what that feels like, but I'm not willing to pay the price of admission, yeah. which is, you know, and, but I mean, you mentioned my research, I lost my mind and research. Well, first of all, I love reading and I love this topic of, I mean, human beings have been fascinated with what they called shamans or wild men living alone. Like for, in, since the beginning of recorded time, you know, human recorded history goes back 5,000 years and literally the first documents have like, oh, stories about wild men in the woods. You know, go read the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, printed in uh, Mesopotamia in like 2000 BC. Um, talks about a wild man living alone in the woods. We're interested uh, because the stories they bring back, and I read, no exaggeration, of uh, 150, 200 books about people's experiences of solitude. And after a while, they get very, very similar. And almost all of them 
made me jealous about what people experienced, you know, as a journalist and as a human and as a traveler and as a curious person. I mean, I really, nothing is more valuable than an intense experience. And I think being alone for a long time makes anything else pale in comparison. And I'll never know. Right. And very few people who have ever existed, like this is another part of the, I mean, you touched on this earlier, but when you start to do the math, you start to really parse it and you start to think about what Chris Knight did out there for 27 years. Like you start to look back and you're like, how many human beings have gone that long, totally alone. And there might not be very many at all who exceeded what he did. I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a very distinct outlier. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we talked about this earlier, like this book was fact checked by two independent fact checkers. I had the prosecuting attorney and Chris Knight's defense attorney, people who are privy to documents that weren't made public. Uh, The police officers scour my manuscript for anything that wasn't, didn't feel right. And if I was, you know, 99% sure of something, I just cut it out. It wasn't enough. So the story is true. That said, I went looking for another Chris Knight, someone who'd spent 27 years without anybody checking on them, without anybody knowing where they were. Chris Knight said a total of one syllable, and I believe him. There's not a shred of evidence to refute a single word Chris Knight ever said. And I don't care if none of your your listeners believe this. I am telling you that I believe a strong case can be made that Christopher Thomas Knight in the 21st century, in the age of you know Facebook and Twitter, was the most secluded, known, known human being that has ever lived in all of human history. Nobody can beat that. Nobody. I'm telling you. Like maybe, like I mean, what about like in the Himalayas or in uh, India or something? And like you say, maybe there's somebody who's out there who we just don't know about. But... I kind of think that's not. You know, I actually, you know, the the title, the subtitle of the book is the you know the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. And we don't know for sure that he's the last true hermit. I admit that uh, maybe the only hyperbolic line in the entire book is printed on the cover. Um, uh, I actually do imagine that there's somebody out there now that's maybe just never going to come out. It's going to pull off the perfect thing and we'll just never know about it. And it's the fact that that's a possibility is tantalizing to me. And also makes me have like a little grin on my face that there's just someone out there who's, fallen so deep into the well of solitude and found like like i said everybody expresses this incredible joy and lack of loneliness has fallen into it and maybe it'll just be there for their whole life did uh, here's a question for you and i'm i'm trying to recall so forgive me if i'm if i'm not you know not remembering but did chris did chris write anything while he was out there did he keep a journal not one word he did not want to share. He just, he had this idea that even by, when you write a sentence down, and listen, I'm peddling my wares. I'm trying to get people to buy my dang book. But let me just tell you what Chris Knight thinks about that. If you spend your time trying to, writing something down basically means I want someone else to read this. And you're just not thinking of yourself. You're like thinking of an audience. It's artificial by nature. He felt that if it was important, he would keep it in his head. And if it wasn't important, it wasn't worth writing down. So he never wrote a word down. Damn. That's unbelievable. It's crazy. I, 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 I could be a journalist for 500 years and I will never cross a, come across a story this rich. And the whole book is only 191 pages long. It's like it had to be short also because 
it has to reflect the the main character, Chris Knight. You know, this in uh, my first draft of this book, no 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 joke was a one thousand two hundred single spaced pages, and that was just everything I had to say about him. But then I felt that, like Chris Knight himself, one must pare away to the essentials. That's the way he instructed me to think about him, and that's the way he lived his own life, and that's the way I wanted my book to be. Yeah, man, a few words and uh, somebody who to whom any kind of attention is. Uh, repellent or undesired, you know, you'd want to, you, you would want it to be a kind of just the facts reportage, right? Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that I have very strong opinions about Chris Knight, but I try to keep them somewhat in check. I'm human and there's a little bit of first person in the book, but I really think that, you know, I can't tell you whether this is a good book or not. You'll have to decide, but I think that a good book uh, is something where you, it doesn't tell the reader what to think, that you feel like a puppet that way. You read it and decide how you feel. I think when you enjoy reading something, there's like this little dance with the author. And again, I have no idea if I've achieved, you know, Fred Astaire thing where I'm just stepping on your toes here. You'll have to decide that. But if it's done right, maybe you can decide how you feel about him and you can decide if you've made mistaken choices in your own life or by seeing the reflected glow of Chris Knight's really outlier life maybe you could put a few minor tweaks in your own uh it certainly changed some of the ways i have gone about my day having encountered chris knight and you have no idea if he's read the book i sent him the book as soon as it was finished which was before uh, christmas so maybe four months ago and i received exactly the response that i expected which was nothing but i am sure I'll dial it back a little bit from sure. I feel strongly that he has read the book. He's a voracious reader. And the reason why I feel strongly about that is uh, about two years previous, while working on the uh, book, I wrote a magazine article for GQ about Chris Knight. You know, it was just basically a sketch compared to the book, but it had the same general tone, which was cautious warmth. And uh, he said nothing to me. I sent him an early draft of the article just to make sure he had it. And uh, but I did, was able to meet with him uh, after the article came out. And he acknowledged that he had read it. And he said, of course, there were elements that he didn't like and there were elements he liked but he said like the, the most important thing to me which is that he respected it he really respected it and uh the last time i ever saw chris knight he said to me you know you're my boswell and which is a reference to the uh, biographer who wrote the famous life of samuel johnson he basically said to me i anoint you my biographer and i took those th th that's a very I, f I found that to be a very powerful um anointment, I guess. And I, I didn't write a single word of the book for Chris Knight. I, you know, it was not written for him. It was written for, uh, to be as accurate as possible. But uh, he really did give me the gift of his being his biographer. And I took that extremely seriously, even though, again, there's a veins of humor going through it. But, and, uh, and, and he wouldn't, I mean, like, and he wouldn't want any other royalties or like no, no money. He wants nothing. I asked... And he basically implied that if there was a financial connection between us, that's a connection. That's not what he wants. He wants no connection. He he doesn't. He, that's a form of a relationship. Uh, and I, um, I, I, you know, I, a, a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, well, I would like to help Chris Knight out." And I said, I, "You know, I think the best thing to do is would be to donate maybe to the Pine Tree Camp, which is where he did most of his thieving raids." I've been regularly giving a little bit to the Pine Tree Camp. It's a kind of like this great program where they have uh, you know, facilities for uh, 
adults and children with uh, mental and physical disabilities. And it's uh, the director of the camp at the time, you know, I said to him, you know, you were being robbed by this guy. How did you feel? And he was like, that's fine, man. It's like, he's probably, he probably would be a camper here. He had this like warmth towards Chris Knight, even while they were being robbed. Like, why else would this camp exist if not to help people like him? And maybe we're helping him in our own way. And I just love that attitude. And Anyway, if you feel like reaching out to Chris Knight financially, maybe just give instead to the Pine Tree Camp. I think Chris Knight would approve of it, and I certainly do. All right. Well, um, I got, I've got i got to let you go, but before I do, I want to ask you one more question, and it's about uh, the photograph on the cover of the book, which uh, has – has does it have his car? Is that his car? No, it's stylized. He uh, he abandoned a Subaru Brat. I'm looking at it right now. It's, it's, no, it's, it, I, it's a it's – a, Covers of books, I think, are uh, they have an element of artistry to it. Let's just say that the true nonfiction starts as soon as you open the front cover. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, no, I was just, I was just curious because I mean, it's like you tell the story of his decision to go away into the woods. He did literally just drove into the middle of nowhere on some sort of forest road, ditched his car, and I was wondering if, like, did you set out to try to find it? I don't know if anybody could probably find it. It's probably overgrown at this point, but. Yeah, as far as I know, nobody's found it. Um, I went a little bit of poking around, but Moosehead Lake is enormous, and Chris Knight's description of where he abandoned his car was so vague. I mean, humorously enough, I mean, I love Central Maine, but I have to tell you, I did come across a number of abandoned vehicles. Uh, it's not unusual, but I imagine that the brat is almost certainly still there. It's been, been like close to, though it's been more than about 30 years by now. And if you do find an abandoned brat that where trees growing through and you see like a set of keys somewhere within, please let me know. <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, I appreciate the time. Uh, congratulations on the book. Are you working on anything new or are you just uh, doing, doing press for this right now? I've become enamored with another criminal. His name is not Chris, uh, an, <laughs> an art thief a guy who has been stealing from museums so don't hold your breath i'm a slow writer but it's become a a new project of mine all right well best of luck on it and thanks one more time thank you it's been a pleasure okay guys there you go that is michael finkel author and journalist his book is called the stranger in the woods out there now from knopf you can find him online at michaelfinkel.com his uh, twitter handle is at mike finkel if you want to follow him on twitter The Stranger in the Woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to support it, you can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also support the show via PayPal. To do that, just go to the the official website, otherppl.com. There's a link in the sidebar. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music, as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to email me, let me know your thoughts, tell me a story. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. It's an incredible story. Chris Knight. I should add, it's weird, you know, the name Chris Knight uh, resonates for me because when I was a kid, I used to watch this movie called Real Genius starring Val Kilmer. Perhaps you're familiar with it. And uh, Val Kilmer's character in that movie was named Chris Knight. And that movie, too, features uh, somebody who likes to be alone. His name is Laszlo Hollyfeld. 
It's all set at uh, Caltech in Pasadena. Laszlo Hollyfield lives in the basement, I believe. It's an old classic. I used to watch Real Genius. This is how big of a nerd I was. <laughs> I used to watch Real Genius the day before the first day of school every year as a kind of ritual, getting myself psyched up for the new school year. And I think I liked it because it was a movie about a total geek who's really smart but is also cool. Anyway, thanks to Michael Finkel. Thanks to you guys for listening. And uh, 